Um, we have been journeying through the book of Romans, and it has uh, uh, brought us to a place in Romans 9 through 11 uh, that is dealing with some major, major issues. Basically, what Paul is presenting in the book of Romans is, is the gospel, and he is uh, telling us all the wonders and the, the reasons he's not ashamed of the gospel, uh, because even though we were separated from God by our sins through the work of Jesus Christ on the cross and him shedding his blood uh, and then proving the value of that and the victory of that through his resurrection, um, he allows us to, when we accept him by faith, be justified, uh, to be saved, to be adopted into the family of God, to be reconciled to God. But the the promises and the blessings of salvation go beyond just our eternal destiny. It's, it's the process of our transformation now, our sanctification through the power of the Holy Spirit, and, and the guarantee of our glorification in the future. And, and Paul talks about all of that in the first eight chapters of, of Romans. When he gets to chapter 9, the question that is raised is, frankly, this, can God be trusted? <laughs> um, he's made all these great promises. Does he have a track record that would allow you to trust him? And what Paul does in Romans chapter 9, he begins this discussion dealing with how God has dealt with Israel. God made all kinds of promises to Israel. Did he fulfill those? Has he been faithful to Israel in a way that would give us confidence that he's going to be faithful to us? And we've arrived at chapter 11 here that's kind of the culmination of, of uh, chapters 9 uh, through 11. And, and when we get to chapter 11, I began it last week and we'll review it briefly today, but I just want to remind you how this fits together. Um, chapter 9, in dealing with God's faithfulness to Israel, um, chapter 9 really emphasizes God's sovereignty. God is sovereign. Uh, chapter 10 uh, puts man's responsibility in there and says God is fair. God is fair in how he deals with Israel. Um, and then what we're looking at in chapter 11 is God is faithful. But this, it brings together these ideas. Can you trust God when both of us are involved? Okay, uh, Because we make authentic, real decisions, um, and yet God is sovereign over everything that's happening. And putting together this, this combination of God being sovereignly in control and us making real, authentic decisions, um, it, it can sometimes feel uh, like they're in tension. As I have prepared for preaching through the book of Judges in the fall, um, uh, that leads me to the book of Ruth, which we'll eventually get to after Judges. And, and it really struck me that Ruth is a real great picture of, of both the, the sovereignty of God and him working in Ruth behind the scenes. I call Ruth the hidden hand of God. And yet faithful people who make real choices. And so because it puts together this idea that, that God is faithful, but God is fair, that he is sovereign, but we are responsible, Ruth puts that together uh, in a way that I wanted to share with you, and as I began to figure out, well, how can I put that together in, in a way that's relevant, um, it, it dawned on me, the Bible Project does this really well. And so uh, what I want to do is show you a video from the Bible Project on the book of Ruth. Bible Project do, does these uh, videos for every book of the Bible and a lot of different themes and topics, but this one on the book of Ruth really puts together the interplay of God's sovereignty and uh, human responsibility and human choices. And so I want you to just pay attention to how the humans are making good choices, and yet God is sovereignly um, 
orchestrating everything that may seem like, and, and Tim Mackey emphasizes it, seems like it just so happened that something happens, but you know God is behind the scenes doing that. The book of Ruth is this masterful presentation of this deep theology in a wonderful story. And it, the, the whole story, actually, in my chart, you can see there's, there's a, a massive chiasm in the story that, that highlights the reversal of the beginnings of death and the ending in life of the tragedy. And, and, and God's hand in the background is working all of those things together. Um, there's so many things I could point out, but one, I'll just point out that in chapter 2, verse 3, um, literally the Hebrew says that Ruth's chance chanced upon the field of Boaz. Um, her chance chanced there. And it, it's almost as if this isn't by chance. He's just highlighting that in a, in a wonderful storytelling way, m- making sure you know that. So God is sovereignly working in the chances that are happening. Um, and, and yet on the other side, you've got both Boaz and Ruth who are called people of noble character. Um, <clears throat> the word is often translated virtuous, but not just in terms of morally virtuous, but v- noble character and virtuous in, in the sense of a virtuoso. Uh, they, they are really exemplary in how they live their lives. And so, again, the interplay of these two things shows God is sovereign, but we make valid choices, and, and we need to be people of noble character, people of loyalty, um, as we involve ourselves in the purposes of God. And, and, and that's the tension you see through Romans 9 through 11. Again, chapter 9, God is sovereign over all of, and he broadens the picture, not just the daily life of one family, but in, in Romans 9, it's God is sovereign over this entire process uh, that he's been orchestrating throughout history. And in the middle of that, he is fair as we make legitimate decisions. But in chapter 11, the focus is really going to be on the future and that God is going to be faithful to Israel in the future. Um, This raises the topic of eschatology pretty significantly. Let me try to explain that to you. I've got some eschatology charts out there at the Connection Center. Eschatology is the doctrine of future things. And it's the doctrine of how God fulfills things in the future. And here's the issue that's relevant for Romans chapters 9 through 11. God has made a lot of promises to Israel, and many of them are spiritual. Um, They would be the path for whom the Messiah would come. Uh, They reveal the law, the standard of God. Um, There are a lot of spiritual things that are going on there, but there are a lot of very physical, I would say earthy promises God makes to Israel that they're going to have a land and they're going to have a king and they're going to, this king is going to rule forever. And the question is, are those promises going to be fulfilled? And eschatology kind of looks forward to say, well, how, how, how do we see this unfolding? And, and what chapter 11 does is it shows us that the future that God is sovereignly orchestrating will demonstrate that God will fulfill and be faithful to all of those promises. And so Romans 11 takes the look into the future to say God is faithful. Again, the reason I'm going through all this, so you can trust him. Um, there are two resources I have out there uh, other than the chart, um, both by Chuck Swindoll. One that, that really is just really to give you hope that God is faithful to us, and he uses people who are sometimes lost causes. <laughs> um, Israel, you would think God would have given up on them, but he doesn't, and he doesn't give on, up on us. And then uh, the other one that emphasizes the freedom that we find in, in, in knowing God is sovereign, 
and that that's not somehow a shackle, it's actually a freedom. And so I encourage you to get uh, both of those. Uh, last week, I took a first run through Romans chapter 11 and uh, finished half of that. I'm going to review a little bit and then finish the second half. But the whole book, fit, the whole chapter fits together like this. In the first 10 verses, Paul is going to say that God is faithful to Israel, and he's faithful because there's always been a remnant. Even though Israel has not been faithful to follow God, there's always been some in there um, who have. There's always been a remnant, and he will uh, appeal to uh, his own example and some examples from the Old Testament. Then he's going to move on to a section where he talks about how Israel rejecting the Messiah, uh, which they have done at Paul's time, and the church is growingly more and more Gentile, the, the Jewish nation rejecting the Messiah has opened the door for more Gentiles because the Jewish nature of worshiping God has, has been set aside in the church. And so you don't have to become Jewish. But then there's going to be a second movement in that, that he's going to say, yes, the rejection of the Jews has opened the door for the Gentiles, but there's still going to be a future of which the reception of the Gentiles the Gentiles coming to faith, is part of how God will bring things to a conclusion at the end to bring Israel back in to um, full participation in those blessings. And then he's going to end with this doxology that says, you can't understand it anyways, but praise God that he's in control. Um, There are really two questions that, that frame Romans chapter 11. The first question is, did God reject his people? And then He's going to answer that by saying he hasn't because there's a remnant, Paul and and Old Testament examples. Then he's going to, in verse number 11, raise another question. Um, Did the Jews fall beyond recovery? Is their rejection permanent? Is God finished with them forever? And he's going to say, no, God's not finished with them forever. Um, It's a temporary thing. It opens the door for the Gentiles, but then it's going to be reversed. Again, John Stott summarizes it this way. So then the rejection of the Jews was neither total nor final. That is the theme of this chapter. There is still an Israelite remnant in the present, and there's going to be an Israelite recovery in the future, which will itself lead to the blessings for the whole world. Again, all of that shows God is faithful. God is faithful to do and to fulfill every single promise that he's ever made. Um, And it, it happens in two comings. The first coming of Christ was to redeem That opened the door for everyone to come by grace through faith, which has always been how God saved. And and the Gentiles are the ones who have responded mostly to that. But there's going to be a second coming when Christ comes back to rule. And just prior to that coming, there's going to be a great revival among the Jews. So let's first of all start off with this remnant of God's chosen people. God's faithful because even though people haven't been faithful to him, there's always been at least some in there that have. And Paul's going to highlight himself as an example and then an Old Testament example. Here's how he does it. I ask then, did God reject his people? By no means. I'm an Israelite myself, a descendant of Abraham from the tribe of Benjamin. God did not reject his people whom he foreknew. I'm an example that... All Israelites are not rejected because I'm, I'm a believer. I'm in. Then he's going to look at the Old Testament. Don't you know what Scripture says in the passage about Elijah? How he appealed to God against Israel. Lord, they, the Israelites, they've killed your prophets and torn down your altars. They have strayed from, from you, Lord, and I'm the only one left, and they're trying to kill me. And what was God's answer to him? I have reserved for myself 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Um, I've got a remnant out there. 
They're out there. And so he appeals to this remnant idea to say God is faithful because there's always been this remnant. And he says it's true in the present time, and he highlights grace. Look, look, look at it. So too, at the present time, there's a remnant. There are some Jews who are believers, and they're chosen by grace. And if by grace, then it can't be based on works. If it were, grace would no longer be grace. He's emphasizing this whole thing is all about grace. Um, and, and that's what he's trying to drive home. God graciously has a remnant. God graciously offers salvation to everyone. And, and there are, in the present time, he says, just like uh, in the Old Testament, there's a, a remnant of, of Jews who do place their faith in Jesus Christ. He's going to raise another question. What then? <laughs> What the people of Israel sought so earnestly, they did not obtain. The elect among them did not, uh, but the others were hardened. Yes, they were wanting to have this connection to God, but they were trying to do it through their own performance, and they didn't get it that way. But there were some who understood the grace by faith idea, and they are part of the elect, part of the group, part of the remnant. But the others, they get get hardened in all of this. And and as they're hardened, it, it opens the door for God to work with a new group of people, primarily with the Gentiles. Again, I ask, did they stumble so as to fall beyond recovery? Is God completely finished with them? Not at all. And listen to what he says. Rather, because of their transgression, because Israel fell, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel envious. But if the transgression means riches for the world and their loss means riches for the Gentiles, how much greater riches will their full inclusion uh, bring a couple things to point out here. First of all, the, the reason that that the Gentiles are brought in is so that it would motivate the Jewish people to go, "Hey, I thought we were the people of God, and yet you're getting all these blessings, and and we should live in such a winsome, attractive way that Jewish people go, "Wow, that's what we really are wanting." Anyway, again, I don't think the church does that very well today. There will be, and because God will accomplish His purposes. There will be something that happens in the future that will make Israel jealous to bring them back into the fold. And when they're brought back into the fold, how much more glorious is that going to be? Yes, it's glorious that now it's open up for all Gentiles, and the the Jews have kind of faded away. It's going to be glorious when the Gentiles still there and the Jews come back to that. But now he's going to give a warning to the Gentiles. Yes, God has he has kind of set aside working with the Israelites, although a remnant is always welcome. And he's going to give this warning. Here's what he says. I am talking to you Gentiles, inasmuch as I am an apostle to the Gentiles. I take pride in my ministry in the hope that I may somehow arouse my people to envy and and save some of them. For if their rejection brought reconciliation to the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? He's saying, listen, I am bringing the message to the Gentiles, but my hope in that is that enough Gentiles would come to faith that the Jews would become jealous and turn to him. And then he's going to say this, if the part of the dough offered as first fruits is holy, then the whole batch is holy. If the root is holy, so are the branches. If this thing began with the Jews um, and the promises God made with the Jews, the covenants that God made with the Jews, if it all started with, with them, there's a holiness that extends from the very beginning to the whole batch. God's working this whole program so that so that he can bring to a culmination an expression of his grace and his mercy for his glory of people who enter into a relationship with him by grace through faith. Now he's going to take this branch illustration and build on it. If some of the branches have been broken off, 
that is the Jews. The Jews have been broken off of this tree of God's people. And you, though a wild olive shoot, have been grafted in among the others and share in the nourishing sap from the olive root. The Gentiles, we weren't part of that original plan God was orchestrating in the Old Testament. Always welcome to jump into it, but we weren't a part of it. We were the wild branch. We've been grafted in. Do not consider yourself to be superior to those other branches. Don't get full of yourself. Here's his, his warning. Don't get full of yourself. If you do this, consider this. You don't support the root, but the root supports you. That, that whole foundation of how God worked with the Jews, that was, that's the foundation. And you get your nourishment from those Old Testament scriptures. So I showed this picture last week. This is an olive tree. Uh, an olive tree is a real hardy tree, grows around the Mediterranean, uh, grows in very difficult to, to grow places. Um, and it's, it's such a multi-purpose plant. Olives, you eat them, you use the oil for, um, for um, skin ointment, you use the oil for cooking. Um, it, it is just a, you use the oil for lubrication in the Old Testament to squeaky hinges. And, I mean, it is just a fascinatingly useful tree. The deal with olive trees is, though, they're, they're very sturdy, but after a while, they stop bearing fruit. And so what can happen is you can graft another tree into the base that is nice and sturdy. And that new base then begins to bear the fruit. And that's what Paul is saying. They've been broken off. They weren't bearing any fruit. You've been grafted in, but you're getting your nourishment from that base. You're, you're part of that foundation. And he says this, you will say then, branches were broken off so I could be grafted in. Granted. But they were broken off because of unbelief, and you stand by faith. Don't be arrogant, but tremble. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he'll not spare you either. This is a warning. Don't get full of yourself, and don't think you've earned it. They didn't earn it. You didn't earn it either. Don't think that you earned it. He's going to give another warning. Consider, therefore, the kindness and the sternness of God. Sternness to those who fell, the Jews, but kindness to you, the Gentiles, provided that you continue in the kindness. Otherwise, you will also be cut off, and if they do not persist, and if they don't persist in unbelief, they will be grafted in. For God is able to graft them in again. Another warning that says um, God's orchestrating all of this, and He doesn't want you to become arrogant and self-sufficient. He doesn't want you to think because it's always by grace through faith. But if you stop believing by faith, um, and, and and the church all of a sudden begins to teach something not grace by faith, God's going to stop blessing the church. So we need to be careful about all of that. But he says that's not the end of the story. After all, if you were cut out of an olive tree that is wild by nature, uh, that you were cut um, out of an olive tree that was wild by nature, and contrary to nature were grafted into a cultivated olive tree, how much more readily will these, the natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree? He started off with this cultivated olive tree. He cut them out. Wild ones were put in. Well, that's kind of a tricky process, but it's even easier to take the, to take the cultivated and graft it back in. Um, two old commentators summarize it this way. The restoration of Israel is an easier process than the call of the Gentiles. To kind of move from... 2,000 years of working with the, with the Jewish people, and then overnight go, hey, and this is open up for all the Gentiles, that's a tricky process. But it's actually easier to say, listen, I worked with the Jews back then. We had a, a period of time here when I um, was working with the Gentiles, but now the Jews are back in. That's an easier process because it's what God had intended all along. 
Frank Thielman kind of summarizes and makes our transition to this next section when he says this. The rejection of the gospel among many Israelites doesn't mean that God's promises to bless Israel have failed. Again, so you can trust him. (laughs) The present situation in which Israelite believers are a remnant within Israel and Gentile Christians are growing in number will one day change. Once the number of Gentiles within the people of God has reached its climax, many Israelite unbelievers will see the blessings that have come to Gentiles and seek to emulate their faith in the gospel. In the end, vast numbers of both Gentiles and Israelites will populate the people of God in an amazing display of God's power and wisdom, and I'm going to say, and grace and mercy, because that's what Paul is going to emphasize through all of this. So now he moves away from the Gentiles are in, to say, but the Jews are going to be grafted back in. And so in this section, you're going to see that this hardening is, it's only a temporary thing. This doesn't last forever because there's this time during the church age when Gentiles are coming to belief until all the Gentiles who have been sovereignly chosen by God are in. And then God's going to use that period of time to go back and bring the Jews back in. Eventually then, all Israel will be saved, all Israelites who place their faith in Christ. And all of this is a display of God's mercy. He's going to emphasize again, just like he kind of ends with, it's all about grace and grace and grace and grace. This, it's all about mercy, mercy, mercy. He's orchestrating this whole plan this way. So here's how he starts to develop this. I don't want you to be ignorant about this mystery, brothers and sisters, so that you may not be conceited. Israel has experienced a hardening in part, real key, until the full number of Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will turn godlessness away from Jacob. And this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. First of all, he's saying it's only going to last for a certain amount of time. It's until the full number of Gentiles come in. God knows how many Gentiles are going to get saved. When the last one is saved, God is going to say, now I'm going to begin the end time events that will really bring Israel back to a place of faith in Jesus Christ. And he says this is a mystery. How this is folding, working itself out is a mystery. And and the biblical idea, particularly for Paul, of a mystery is... Um, it's not like being in an escape room, you know, where you're just like, I can't get out. It's a mystery. They're hiding things from me. Um, It's a mystery in the sense of it's been revealed. It was a mystery in the past, but Paul is saying, I'm disclosing the mystery to you. Um, This was a mystery. God didn't make this clear in the past how this was all unfolding. And specifically, the mystery is this in Romans chapter um, 11. And, And it all has to do with all the mystery, when Paul talks about it in Ephesians and Colossians, it all has to do with everything coming to a culmination in what Christ has done. But in particular, here in Romans 11, the mystery is this. No one knew it was going to play itself out this way, but Israel has experienced a partial, partial hardening. Not complete, because there are some in the remnant. And that hardening will last until the full number of Gentiles is saved. That was not revealed in the Old Testament. This is a mystery that now we know. And all Israel will be saved at that point. What does it mean all Israel will be saved? (laughs) Well, it doesn't mean that every Jew um, is going to be saved just because they're Jewish. Back in chapter 9, he deals with that, and he says that's not how it works. Um, Tom Schreiner says this, Some have read Paul to say that Israel will be saved apart from putting their faith in Christ. But such a reading fails to understand 11.25-27 in its context. 
After all, Paul is full of anguish because Israel is separated from Christ, and Israel was criticized for failing to believe in him. You have to believe in him to be a part of this group that is saved. Doug Moo says the Old Testament predicts the Gentiles would join Jews worshiping the Lord in the last days. This Jew, Gentiles being a part of this is not new. But holy novel was the idea that the bulk of Israel would have to wait to enjoy the blessings of the kingdom until the set number of Gentiles had come in, until the full number, it says. Alan Ross says, Paul, based on Isaiah, sees that in the future there will be a vast conversion of Jewish people to the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus the Messiah. This will occur at the end of the age prior to, our, prior to or simultaneously with the coming of the Messiah. It's all going to happen in the future when Christ returns. He came the first time to redeem. He's going to come the second time to rule. And in that time where he comes to rule, there's going to be a great revival among Israel. Frank Thielman says, Paul is saying that after the gospel has been fully proclaimed to the Gentiles and the full number of Gentiles destined for salvation has been completed, Israelite unbelievers will also believe the gospel, presumably in larger numbers than up to that point. The salvation of Israel will happen in close proximity to the time when Jesus, the son of David, and Israel's Messiah comes again. This is why it's all eschatology stuff. But it's God fulfilling all of these promises to be faithful to Israel, do everything that he promised. I can't remind you enough. The reason we need to know this is so that we trust God. And unfortunately... I don't think we as Christians in America need to trust God all that much. Um, I mean, I trust the church to pay my salary. I trust my investments to provide for my future. Um, I trust that my car is going to start in the morning. Um, I trust that, that Dawn's going to make great meals for me. <laughs> I mean, I, I, what do I have to trust? But there are times in our life when it hits where you really do have to trust God, no matter what's going on around you, when crisis hits and you have to trust him. And I think there may be a time in our lifetime where we have to trust more <laughs> because the world's not going to cooperate with us like it does now. And, and what Paul is saying is you can trust God. He'll make good on his promises. And, and he, again, goes to the Old Testament to say, this is nothing new. And he goes to Isaiah 59, and he quotes two parts of Isaiah 59, and, and then from Isaiah 27 puts this kind of pulled together thing that says, look, throughout Isaiah, you see this idea that the deliverer will come from Zion, and he will turn godlessness away from Jacob, and this is my covenant with them. I'll take away my sins. He says, even in Isaiah, it says he's going to come, he's going to return, he's going to restore everything and take away their sins. This is a promise to Israel in Isaiah 59. John Martin, who's a commentator on Isaiah, sets up the whole of chapter 59 this way. Because of the depravity of the nation, national salvation and prosperity would have, would have to come from God's initiative. It's not because of Israel's faithfulness. It's God's initiative and his faithfulness. In chapter 59, the Lord, uh, again, spoke of, Israel, of the people's sin and his provision of salvation because of the Abrahamic covenant. He starts off by saying God wants to save them, but they are just so depraved. But God's still going to, and at the end of the chapter, but God will deliver them. 
God will be faithful. And so what Paul is doing is he's saying this, this idea is not new. It was seen back in Isaiah 59. He's going to continue and, and highlight. Already he's highlighted grace. Now he's going to highlight God's mercy. As far as the gospel is concerned, they, the Jews, are enemies for your sake. But as far as election is concerned, they, the Jews, are loved on account of the patriarchs. Because God made these promises. For God's gifts and call are irrevocable. He's going to fulfill all those promises. The gifts, the call, the promises, they're all irrevocable. Just as you Gentiles, who were at one time disobedient to God, have now received mercy as a result of their disobedience, so they too have now become disobedient in order that they too may now receive mercy as a result of God's mercy to you Gentiles. For God has bound everyone over to disobedience so that he may have mercy on all of them. It's a confusing little go back and forth here, but here's what he's trying to say. No matter who you are, you're experiencing God's mercy if you have a relationship with God. Um, He moves back and forth in this way, I think. God's grace is repeatedly offered in the Old Testament. Israel repeatedly rejected God's grace, even though a remnant of Jews believe, as well as some Gentiles. That's the Old Testament story. God's always offering their grace. They keep rejecting it. Isaiah's an example. Elijah's an example, even though there's a remnant. And now God's grace is offered through Jesus Christ. Only a remnant of Jews believe, but many Gentiles believe. And God's grace will be offered again close to the end of the age. And many Gentiles will already have believed until the full number come in. And then many Jews will believe. All of that is to say, whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, it's all God's grace. And, and God is developing this whole thing to, to display his, his grace, his mercy, his faithfulness. God graciously chose to bring salvation through the family of Abraham. God told Abraham, Genesis 12, 1 through 3, it's through you that the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. That ultimately fulfilled in the birth of Jesus Christ, who was Jewish. And salvation has always been by grace through faith. Paul goes out of his way to use Abraham as the example of salvation by grace through faith in Romans chapter 4. But Jews reject the promise fulfilled through Jesus. That opens the door for unworthy Gentiles to flood into the church. The Jews will eventually become jealous of the faith of the Gentiles, and then the unworthy Jews will flood into the church. No one's worthy. It's all mercy. The Lord, through a grave act of tough love, said to the Jews, in effect, that's enough. You rejected the Messiah, even though I warned you that I would turn to the Gentiles. Therefore, you were set aside. He then calls the most hardened Jew in Jerusalem, a zealous persecutor of the church named Saul, Paul now, who's writing this book, to proclaim the good news among the Gentiles. The mercy shown to the Gentiles will now become the means of stimulating the zeal of Jews to claim the promises of God. Eventually, God will work with the church to make the church more of a beacon and a light to the world. And so this whole complex plan of God is meant to display God's mercy. None of us are worthy of it. We are all unworthy. So again, uh, a brief application here. Remember, we're all recipients of God's grace and mercy. None of us is any more or less worthy than any other. You can't look down on another race, another group, another person whose sin is different than you, whose struggles are different than you. 
We shouldn't look down on anybody because we're all recipients of grace and mercy. The foot is the ground is level at the foot of the cross. And so no boasting. You can't boast in you accomplishing any of it. It's all by God's grace. Now he's going to end with this fantastic closing, um, showing the purpose for all of this, and that is to show the glory of God. Um, a, a preview of it. Tom Schreiner says this, God has designed salvation history. I shared this with the first hour. Um, don't know why. Um, the word for salvation history in German is really fun. It's Heilgeschichte. Um, so if you want to be German, it's just a fun word to say, Heilgeschichte. Um, God has designed salvation history in such a way that the extension of his saving grace surprises those who are recipients as he exercises the freedom of his grace. He's going to show the surprise. Gentiles were elected to salvation when the Jews were expecting to be the special objects of his favor. And the Jews will be grafted in again at a time when Gentiles will be tempted to believe they're superior to ethnic Israel. Everybody thinks they're special, but you're all just recipients of grace because it's all about God's glory. So this is how he concludes. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to the Lord that God should repay them? For from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. This is not just randomly thrown together. This is a beautiful piece that concludes this section. He starts off with the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. And then what he's going to do is highlight each one of those in reverse order. Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. Now he's going to talk about God's knowledge, how unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Then he's going to address the wisdom. Who's known the mind of the Lord or has been his counselor? Then his riches. Who has ever given to God that God should repay him? (laughs) Oh, the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. His knowledge is great. His wisdom is unsurpassed and his riches make him unneedy. So for from him and through him and for him are all things to him be glory forever. Amen. It's beautifully, it's all about God. It's all about God who you can trust. Chuck Swindoll says this, it was as if he were stringing verbal pearls onto a magnificent necklace of praise, selecting each one ever so carefully. The depth of the knowledge and the wisdom and the riches of God. Everything is about him. It's for him. It's to him. So how do we orient our lives to this message that God can be trusted? Uh, Let me say it this way. God is faithful to the letter and to the end. God is faithful to the very details of every promise he's ever made. Jesus said not one jot or tittle, not one of the smallest letter of the Hebrew alphabet or the smallest distinguishing mark that distinguishes two letters. Not any of that is going to pass away until God fulfills it. God will fulfill to the letter and to the end. He will fulfill everything. So lock that into your theological foundation. Just put in solid what you stand on. God can be trusted. He's faithful. He does what he says. And secondly, Humbly acknowledge the sovereignty of God, not only in our salvation. God sovereignly orchestrated all the events that led up to the provision of our salvation through Jesus Christ. But God is sovereignly orchestrating our lives 
to sanctify us. He's given us resources through the Word, the Church, the Holy Spirit, but He's also orchestrating every chance that you chance upon, like Ruth. He's orchestrating every little encounter you have to sanctify us in hopes of our future glorification, and we can count on God for all of that. Father, we thank you that you're faithful, especially when we see so clearly and evidently that we and your people have not been faithful for years. But Father, our faithfulness doesn't thwart your purposes. It doesn't hinder your plan. Um, but Father, our, our faithfulness really does um, smooth the way for us. <laughs> and so help us to, to trust in your mercy, in your grace, in your plan. Help us to um, recognize that, that you're sovereign, to rest in that, and to live lives uh, that are worthy of the calling you've given us. We pray that in Christ's name. Amen.